if you hold an orthodox view of God, if you don't embrace open theism, the idea that God doesn't have perfect knowledge of future events, then you have to believe that when God created, he knew all this was going to happen. And yet he still created the way he created. So the only question is, did he have a self-glorifying purpose in all of that? Or is it just meaningless, random violence and horror and everything else? Hi, I'm Evelyn Ray. Welcome to The Cauldron Pool Show. Today, I am joined by Dr. James White. Very excited to have you here, Doctor. I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro. I've written it down because your resume is very impressive and I would really like for people in my audience who might not know who you are or some non-Christians who haven't yet come across you to sort of understand um, all the things you've been able to achieve by the grace of God and I'm going to go for it. So if I get anything wrong, please correct me once I have finished. So uh, you are a speaker and author. You are the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. You are a professor of church history and apologetics at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. You are the host of Dividing Line, and you have also participated in countless debates over the time, which I have very much enjoyed. Um, and you have also um, debated about Calvinism, which is why I wanted to get you here today. You wrote a book called The Potter's Freedom, which was an earlier book that you wrote, but I feel like it kind of addresses some of the things we'll talk about here today. So that's a little bit of his background. If I have missed anything, please feel free to uh, fill in the blanks for anyone. Well, I've been been married for 40 years, uh, two kids and now five grandkids. And uh, uh, that's really the uh, the important part, I think, uh, when you when you get to it is uh, I just uh, a week ago, Sunday, uh, got to baptize little Jenny. Uh, one of my granddaughters have already baptized Cadence and Clementine. And uh, so uh, those are those are pretty exciting things. And it also demonstrates that reformed folks are uh, very focused on evangelism. I mean, we we really started off uh, going out to the Mormon Easter pageant in Mesa, Arizona. That used to run for six six nights, and we would stand there for hours and hours and hours witnessing to the Mormons and go up to Salt Lake City to the General Conference up there for years and years and years and doing street witnessing. I've, uh, I've uh, gone street witnessing in Leicester Square in, uh, in, in London, and uh, we'd set it up to where when the Muslims showed up, they just sh shuffle them off over to me and I talk to them and they continue doing their witnessing to the regular Londoners and stuff like that. So we've been very active in, you know, proclaiming the gospel in many contexts uh, down there. In, in, uh, in fact, my favorite debate on Islam was at the University of New South Wales uh, mm -hmm. with uh, Abdullah Kunda uh, in 2011. And uh, so we've done that kind of work really literally all over the world. And um, so it's not a matter of just uh, pie in the sky, ivory tower theology. Um, I, most people don't know my, my second most popular book is titled uh, grieving our path back to peace. And it came from when I was a hospital chaplain and people are shocked because Calvinists don't have hearts. So how can you be a hospital <laughs> chaplain, you know, and, and do something like that. Um, but the theology of God's sovereignty and his purpose in life and death, absolutely vital uh, to dealing with 
really important pastoral issues like that, mm-hmm. especially with the subject of death and disease. And uh, I remember I was doing a debate at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, well, close to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. Uh, a student came and he had his wife with him and had a little child in a stroller. And he said, um, we have been informed that our child will not be able to live past 18 months uh, because of a congenital disease. And he said, if we didn't understand the sovereignty of God, I don't know how we would survive this. And your book, The Potter's Freedom, you know, introduced me to that. So there's some, you know, sometimes we sit around Facebook and argue about stuff and it seems like it's really far, far away. But the reality is this is foundational stuff to everything we do in in the Christian faith. And when people say, oh, I love your stuff, it's just that Calvinism stuff out like, I'm just like, but that's foundational to everything else. I, I mean, I don't know how you just separate one thing out like that, because even when I call the Muslims to faith in Christ at a, at a debate, like I did there in Sydney, um, more than once, um, I, I do that understanding that I can't change their hearts. And so I'm not going to use, I'm not going to try to pull at their heartstrings and try to trick them into doing something. I'm going to give them the clear gospel presentation in a way a Muslim can understand it. But I know I have to trust the spirit of God uh, to, you know, grant spiritual life. And um, I can't, I can't replace that. And I, I won't try to. So yeah, it's sort of important aspect of things. Hmm. Yeah. I've very much appreciated all of your um debates over the years and i appreciate how you're willing to have them you're you're right there there is a you know unfortunately a lot of people um who like to do a lot of talking behind a keyboard and you know have the ability to do that but you know i've always appreciated you interacting with people face to face um you're you're not ashamed um, of where you stand and you're happy to sort of publicly take that stance which has been something i've definitely appreciated and you mentioned you know your family um that i missed that out you're right i should have included that because um that is so important and i i love that you love your children and your family and your wife so much i really we mentioned before we um press record here your daughter's um podcast sheologians um summer incredibly uh helpful if there are any women or even men who might want to tune in and listen incredible content there so i'll just throw that one out there but um you know i wanted to really kind of nut out what calvinism is because in australia um as a calvinist myself i'm probably the minority there there is this really encouraging sort of cultural shift towards reform theology in other countries like america and i've really seen it and i'm seeing sort of the really good fruit over there growing on on the trees and it's been such a blessing to look and to be able to access that via the internet but over here in australia as i said a lot of people are confused by me um, by the theology that i sort of align myself with and like you sort of mentioned they're like i really like you evelyn but just not the calvinism stuff (laughs) um and something that i always say it's always people who don't understand calvinism that like to criticize it um because most of the times i'll go well what is it that you don't agree with and they can't actually answer the question it's like somebody has told them that it's wrong 
and they just sort of go along with it. Um, so I really wanted to get you here today um, to, to sort of nut it out, um, you know, for, for beginners, for people who are hesitant about it, for people who are completely against it. I thought we could just kind of throw it in the ring here and kind of go through it. Um, you know, people have reached out to me so much and said, what actually is Calvinism? And, you know, Calvinism for me isn't just John Calvin, um, and which is something that people often think, well, how is it that a man here all of a sudden had this spiritual awakening to Calvinism? Like when scripture has been around for, you know, however many thousands of years, why now? Why John Calvin? And I think it was R.C. Sproul who wrote a, an amazing quote about that. If somebody today comes up with something new, it's probably not right because the Bible's been around for such a long time. Um, you think God's all of a sudden just given someone this spiritual awakening that they didn't 4,000 years ago or 2,000 or 1,000, whatever it might be. Um, but I wanted to, you know, you obviously know church history pretty well. Um, that's a given. That's kind of what you do as something else I really enjoy about listening to you. So where did Calvinism or reform theology actually start? Well, let's let's make sure that people understand you know, when we're talking about Calvinism, that's just a, that's just a nickname today. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about is an emphasis upon the reality that God is sovereign over all human affairs, that he is accomplishing his purpose in creation, that we are, uh, he is the, the potter and we are the clay and he forms us as he wishes. It has a very high view of, of God's holiness, his otherness, his power, and the fact that he is accomplishing his decree in this world. And then it has, it has a high view of man as the image bearer of God, but also a recognition of man's fallenness. And hence, over against the religions of men or many forms of what has been called Christianity down through the centuries, over against that is a strong emphasis on the, the freedom of God's grace. So, for example, if you look at the time of the Reformation, you look at the system that Martin Luther was looking at, uh, let's say, in the year 1510, when he first went to Rome, for example, and began to become disillusioned because of the things he saw there. Rome had a very strongly, and still does, have a very strongly sacramental system where you have sacraments that uh, are the conduits of God's grace. And so by your freely participating in these sacraments, you can obtain grace from God. But that grace cannot save you in and of itself. And so there is a synergistic, two different forces working together uh, to accomplish salvation. And it was, uh, what most people don't know, is that the first written debate of the Reformation was between Martin Luther and a Roman Catholic priest, Dutch humanist scholar by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. And Erasmus is important for all sorts of other reasons we'll get into today. But Erasmus defended the freedom of the will, and Luther defended the bondage of the will. Because Luther had come to understand that outside of the grace of God uh, raising him to spiritual life and freeing him from the fetters of sin, he would, he would have no hope. If it was a synergistic situation, it was going to be a problem. And so... Uh, Luther, that early Luther, especially up through 1525, uh, very strongly emphasized the, the sovereign grace of God, the deadness of man and sin. 
And so, but that was because he was an Augustinian. And there was that element, there was an element of that within what's called Augustinianism, going all the way back to Augustine, um, especially right around the uh, second, third decade of the, the fifth century. And so a lot of people go, well, yeah, okay, we can go back to Augustine. There were a few people like Gottschalk in between. But the reality is the question of man's role and God's role in salvation is addressed in scripture. It, it didn't just, Augustine didn't wake up one morning and go, I'm going to come up with something weird and new here. And when you think about it, some of the earliest writings, for example, Clement's Epistle to the Corinthians, is soaked with discussions of God's elect and the number of the elect and, and grace. And you think about it, uh, Clement's writing from Rome, and they had a epistle from Paul called Romans. So they had Romans 9 all mm. the way back then, obviously. They had read Romans mm. 8 and 9. And so the the tendency, I would say, the tendency of man is always to exalt and to um, elevate his own capacities and abilities. And the scriptures have to be very, very clear as to man's inabilities. So, for example, in John chapter 6, when, when Jesus is talking, you know, he's, he's talking about the fact that he's come down of heaven to do his father's will, and his will is that he lose none of those that are given to him. There's complaint on the part of the people that are listening, and Jesus' response is, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me. That's a phrase of inability. And there are a number of places in the Gospel of John where that inability is laid out. You would think, given the standard evangelical approach to things, that you would have verse after verse after verse plainly teaching man's ability. But the reality is, you have the Bible teaching Christ's ability to be a perfect Savior, God's ability to save perfectly, and you have man's inability to do anything about it. That's what the Bible teaches. And, and in fact, um, I, I think of the text in John chapter 8 when, when, when Jesus says, why are you not able to hear my words? Most people would answer, well, because they didn't choose to, or you know, we didn't sing enough uh, you know, praise choruses to get them in the right mood or whatever. But he says, why don't you hear my words? Because you don't belong to God. You're not of Christ's sheep, as he would say in my sheep in John chapter 10. And so there are these many texts. In fact, I would invite anyone, honestly. I, I remember so clearly about, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago now, uh, I had a conversation. It was actually online conversation. That's how early it was even the very beginning of the internet, um, I had a conversation with a, a woman who had been raised in the Churches of Christ, which is a very, very strongly work salvation-oriented group, at least the part she was a part of. But she had been taught that you need to believe the Bible and all that it says. And she had gotten that part. And so she would come into our chat channel and we would just talk to her about John chapter 6. And so I would I would encourage anybody, there's a whole chapter on it in in. Uh, Potter's Freedom. I wrote a book called Drawn by the Father, specifically on, on John chapter 6. If you just start, go ahead and start at the beginning of the chapter if you want to, but you can you could jump to Jesus' discussion in the synagogue Capernaum. 
if you just follow that through, don't jump around, don't jump out of it, don't put it, turn it upside down, follow the argument straight through. You will see plainly and clearly what Jesus is teaching there. And he is teaching that there are specific people that the Father gives to the Son and entrusts them to the Son for their salvation and expresses that his will is that the Son lose none of them. Now, could the Son ever fail to do the Father's will? Well, of course not. So, what that means is the Son has to have the capacity and ability to save the uttermost, which is exactly what the book of Hebrews says in chapter 7. He is able to save the uttermost. Um, So when we talk about this, what we're talking about is an emphasis upon God's perfect ability to save. And that's found not only in Ephesians 1 and John 6 and John 10 and John 17 and and, and numerous places in the the New Testament, but it's likewise found in the early church fathers. Now, will you find all sorts of other early church writers that didn't get that? Well, remember something. Um, many of those early writers didn't even have a completed New Testament. How good would our theology be if we didn't have Romans and Galatians and maybe First Corinthians or something like that? So there were people, we have their writings, but they didn't even have a completed New Testament yet. And yet, in the earliest writings, you will find this strong emphasis. Uh, and in fact, one of my favorite early writings, the Epistle to Diognetus, justification by faith, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, it's all there. It's, mm. it's, it's plainly enunciated. We'll be told all the time, oh, that, that stuff came only with Luther. And it's like, no, no, it's, it's a part of the primitive record of the church. And so Augustine certainly makes advancement in the arguments because he's responding against someone who is actually saying no uh god's grace just gives us an example it's not nece- it's not necessary it's helpful but not necessary and so as conflicts take place you get clarification or you get compromise um that certainly is was the history up to the point in the reformation and even in the Reformation, you're going to find differences between Luther and Calvin and Zwingli on, on fine issues. Um, but that's where you then find out, really fundamentally, if you believe in sola scriptura, if you believe in scripture as the sole infallible rule of faith, and you believe in tota scriptura, all of scripture, then that becomes the foundation for understanding that the scriptures are... When, when Paul, just in passing, says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that wasn't just a, 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 a throwaway phrase. Paul understood that everything he was doing, that God had an elect people. And he, did, he doesn't necessarily know who they are. Hmm. But everything that Paul does in his suffering for the church and his imprisonments and everything else, he knows is being used by God as the means by which God is going to draw his elect people unto himself. And that certainly has been my motivation, uh, standing outside of a a general conference, the Mormon church in Salt Lake City, uh, people treating you like dirt or tearing up the tracks and throwing them in your face and doing stuff like that. Why would you do that? Because I know of, I know of, for example, a church in Utah, And why is it there today? Because 20 years earlier, 
I was at the north gate of Temple Square and I talked with a guy and I had already given out my copies. I have a book called Letters to a Mormon Elder that I had for Mormons. I was already out of them. And I happened to have in my bag a copy of God's Sovereign Grace, which was a precursor to uh, the Potter's Freedom. And it's not about Mormonism or anything, but I gave it to the guy. Years later, we get a phone message at my church, and it was on a, a cassette tape, if you all know what a cassette tape is. And uh, uh, here's a woman going, my husband was given a book called God's Sovereign Grace at the Mormon temple, and he never read it, but he didn't throw it out. I've read it, and I know this is true, but I can't find anybody who believes this. Can you help me? And so we got hold of Jason Wallace, uh, Christ Presbyterian Church of Magna, Utah. He started driving up. I mean, the guy drives all over Utah, uh, planting churches and stuff like that. He's a wonderful guy. And there's now a, there's now a church uh, in that city uh, because in God's sovereignty, uh, you know, I didn't I had no way of knowing that. Uh, but if I didn't believe that. We wouldn't have we wouldn't be standing outside Mormon temples and, mm. and passing out tracks and, and things like that for the years and years and years that we have. Mm. That's amazing. And even if, you know, even if it's one soul, one eternal soul that you, you know, God uses you to to bring into his grace, like there's just no nothing greater. I often say most people online hate me, <laughs> don't like me. I'm against the grain. But if I can just, you know, um, if God can just use me just to just for one eternal soul like that, that right there is, you know, is is the best that, you know, you can ever do for, for the glory of God. So that's an amazing story. All those years later, the wife has read it. Did you ever yeah. find out, and this is a bit off topic, whether the husband came around eventually or? I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know. I could probably ask Jason, he might know. Um, he's actually yeah. setting up a debate. Uh, Jeff Durbin and I are going to be doing a debate in April up in Salt Lake City, uh, assuming the world will allow that to happen and uh, <laughs> we're still functioning uh, with two mm. Uh, atheists on is morality possible without God. And uh, so Jason's been up there 25 years. Talk about a rough area. You've got to believe in the sovereignty of God (laughs) to to build a church in Magna, Utah. Okay. You really, really do. So I'll have to remember to ask him sometime. I'm not sure how that Mm. all, that all worked out, but Mm. maybe what I need to do since I haven't done it yet is just sort of quickly outline Theologically, I've, I've talked about what the central issue is, the freedom of, of God and salvation. But what most people have heard of are the five points of Calvinism. And yeah. I, I think people need to understand there's much more to it than the five points. The five points happen to come out of some disputations that took place about 50 years after Calvin's death uh, amongst Reformed churches. Mm. And there's much more than five points. And the five points you've heard, the tulip. Yeah. Um, I like to present it as six points because there was a there was a belief that everybody shared back then that people don't share today that needs to be put in there because the rest of it doesn't make any sense without it. Um, and that is the sovereignty of God, God's yeah. absolute sovereignty over all things. You know, today we have people like open theists who don't believe God knows future free actions of free creatures. Mm-hmm. And so the, the future is open to, to God and and he's sometimes surprised by what happens and and process theology and all the rest of this kind of stuff. That didn't exist uh, at that point in time. 
And so it was, it was a given that God's unchangeable, his decree is firm, and we have to deal with that. We have to deal with what the Bible teaches in light of that reality. And so for a lot of evangelicals, they've not been introduced to the God of Isaiah 40 through 48. It says, I declare the end from the beginning. The, the whole way he, he demonstrates that he's God and the other gods aren't is that he knows not only the future, but he knows the past and why it happened. Mm -hmm. And we, we tend as creatures to try to fit him into mm -hmm. our experience and parameters. And we can't. And, and for, for most, most reformed people that I know of that stay reformed, they, re they remember the day when they realized God is God and I'm not. And it broke them. It, 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 it shattered their, their egos and their, I'm in charge of stuff. When you realize you're a creature and that God can do with you as he pleases. And that's not what is attractive to a lot of people today. When you have secular humanism, you know, mm -hmm. on the, you know, being rampant. And so that's the first doctrine, sovereignty of God. He has a decree. He's accomplishing then the tulip goes to man and talks about total depravity. That does not mean man is as evil as he could be. What it does mean is that every aspect of a man's being is impacted by sin. We are fallen creatures, and that's where the inability passages come from. We are not able to come to Christ unless drawn by the Father. We are not able to keep God's law unless changed from the inside made a new man. Um, and so we are the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And so you, you could fit in here. It's not specifically stated, but you could fit in here another belief that is less common today. And that is the federal headship of Adam. You have Adam as the head of one humanity and Christ as the head of a new humanity. And so which one are you in? This is, I don't know how anybody reads Romans chapter five and doesn't realize that's exactly what Paul's saying here. It's this whole discussion, but it, it, it's right there. You're either in Adam and you get from Adam all he can give you, which is death, or you're in Christ and you receive from Christ what he can give you, and that is life. And so that's a part of the total depravity. The you is unconditional election, and that is that God's elect election of his people. It's a specific people. It's a fixed people. Um, it's not just a group. That's the normal way around this is to say, well, hmm. God has elected that anyone who believes in him uh, will be saved. The election, and we don't have the time to do it right now, but um, in Ephesians chapter one, the election that is there is personal. It's not a impersonal group that we just put ourselves into, but there is a personal election that is revealed there in Ephesians one, Romans eight, nine, uh, and other places in the New Testament. Um, and so it is not conditional it's not God looking down the corridors of time to see who's going to believe in him. And then he elects them based on what he's going to see they're going to do. The reason it's unconditional is it's completely free. And that the reality is in light of total uh, depravity, if God looked down the corridors of, of history to see who would believe in him in and of themselves, there wouldn't be anybody because no one's able to come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. There is that enmity with God. 
that that exists that well one of the most startling examples actually comes from the old testament god has to take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh no heart of stone has ever voluntarily been taken out there has to be a change. That has to be something that God does. It's the valley of the of the dead bones. You know, they're they're dead, um, and so there has to be a a divine activity, a d- divine initiative. So the unconditional election means it's freely, freely done by God, with nothing constraining him. The L is the one that people struggle with the most, but it really shouldn't be. Uh, L stands for limited atonement, particular redemption. There's different ways that we can describe it. But here's here's the thing. To me. That one, once I saw that, I figured the whole thing out. So maybe that's just a weirdness about me. Limited atonement simply means that what Jesus does is in perfect harmony with what the Father does and in perfect harmony with what the Spirit does. I just refer to it as inter- the, the Trinitarian harmony of the gospel. So if God has elected a particular people, and has chosen to make the son the means by which they're going to be saved, then his atoning death is going to be for the people that God has elected to join to him. Why would it be for anybody else? Why would there why would there be something outside of that range? I've, I've never understood that. And then the Spirit's going to come in irresistible grace and raise them to life. So who does the Spirit do? Those the Father has elected. So it's just it's just the harmony of the Trinity, each one doing that aspect of that work of redemption that brings glory to God. So what we're, what we're saying is that in the Old Testament, when the high priest offered the sacrifice, he wasn't offering the sacrifice for anybody but those who had drawn near to worship. He wasn't offering it for the Babylonians. He wasn't offering it for the Assyrians. There was a particular people for whom that sacrifice was being offered. And the blood was being placed upon the mercy seat in the holy place. Well, that's the that's the picture of what Jesus does. And so the question is, when Jesus dies for his people, we are united with him. Uh, we have that beautiful hymn, my name was written on his hands. What, what does that mean? It means the atonement was not some impersonal act that we then activate when we choose to do so. We were united with him in his death. His death becomes our death, his resurrection, our resurrection. Now, we don't experience that until a particular point in time that God has, has decreed. That has to be the case, or the only people who could have been saved were the people that were alive in Jesus' day. Um, but the reality is that a particular people are united with Christ. His death atones for them perfectly. And therefore, there's nothing I can add. To what Christ does. His death as my high priest has paid my debt. And it's there's there's going to be no one who's going to be able to say, ah, I thwarted God's plan because Christ died for me, but I refuse to believe. Mm-hmm. That's that's not what the scriptures, what the scriptures mm-hmm. teach us in regards to the role of the high priest in the book of Hebrews, especially. So uh limited atonement, irresistible grace simply means that at the time God has foreordained. Spirit of God comes and raises me to spiritual life, takes me out of the bonds of death. Um, you know, Jesus in John chapter eight, when he was you know, teaching the people, there are certain Jews that believed on him, even though John uses a certain form of the verb that would indicate it wasn't saving faith. And when he 
says to them, if you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Hmm. And what's their reaction? We've never been set us free. We've never been enslaved hmm. anyone. Well, they actually had been for a long time, uh, but that's the deception of sin. And so we have to be set free. Someone else has to set us free. If we're going to be sons of God, then there has to be a resurrection. We have to be raised to spiritual life. And how does that happen? We don't raise ourselves. Uh, at, at the appointed time, Spirit of God raises us to spiritual life and gives to us the gifts of faith and repentance, saving faith, which endures, repentance, which is true. And as a result, you then have the P, and that is the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. And that is a person who has truly been changed by the Spirit of God, one of those elect joined to Christ in eternity past. Christ will not lose any of his sheep. Again, the focus is not on all the questions we could ask about how many times I've quote unquote backslidden or any of the things like that. The issue is John 6 39. Uh, this is my Father's will that all of all that he's given me, I lose none of them. Is he able to do that? Is Christian salvation a cooperative effort where God does his best and then we've got to do our best and then that's how it all works? Um, or is this the glorification of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the roles they take in the redemptive work, uh, all to his glory and nothing to our glory at all? Hmm. That's really the question. Is salvation of the Lord or is it not? And I would just point out before we look at some of the texts that people say, well, that can't be because of this. When you go to the pastor's description that are specifically on the topic of man's abilities, God's decree, the the, the, the work of Christ in, in atonement, um, that go on for verse after verse, sometimes chapter after chapter, especially in the book of Hebrews. I think, I think one of the reasons that people struggle is because Hebrews is not a lot of people's favorite book. You have to know a lot about the Old Testament to, to make Hebrews work. And yet Hebrews has the clearest teaching on the unity of the Father and the Son in atonement of any of the books in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to uh, John 6, John 8, John 10, John 17, so on and so forth, when you go to those places, um, you see very plainly the the, the teaching of the centrality of the work of God in Christ. And then when we look at the objection passages, they are in passing on other topics. Hmm. They're, they're talking about um, praying for all people and having a peaceful life in this, in this, in, in, in this world or, and people are going, ah, but it says this and therefore we can imply this. And so I think it's important for people to understand when you go to the long texts that actually address these issues, this is the teaching you get. And then you go to texts that are, well, this might imply this. That's where the problem comes in is uh, you start with the main and plain texts and you interpret the other texts in light of the main and plain texts. I think that's important to keep in mind. 
Uh, yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, about reading the Bible, when you read the texts and things like that, um, things are pretty clear. Something that I noticed, um, you know, I obviously was, I grew up in a very Arminian style church with my family. Now, for those who might not really understand, Arminian is different to reform theology in the whole idea of free wills, things that James sort of touched on in, in that regard, particularly with salvation and the doctrine of salvation and things like that. And something and it's that Arminian, I, not Armenian. Those yes. are two very different things. <laughs> people often ask me about that actually. What are you talking what about? What do you have against Armenian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's spelled differently. It's very different yes. to that. Um, but the thing is, I didn't know how to read the Bible properly. And that was the biggest, uh, like Achilles heel for me is that I was lost in how to read the Bible. And it's really sad because something that I've noticed when you have a church that doesn't do expository teaching, and when you have a church that doesn't, you know, adhere to the, the solar of scripture and things like that, when scripture isn't sufficient and it's more of like a pep talk and it, it, it's open to a lot of human interpretation. And when you interpret the Bible with humanistic tones, you miss the whole point of the text. And so I grew up in that darkness, I like to say, and I did a study. Um, it was a book that I purchased from a reformed bookstore, which was great because the only books you can kind of get there were that way theologically inclined. And so I, I got it and I read it and it taught me how to read the Bible. And here I was in my twenties learning how to read properly. And it was once I harnessed that skill, reformed theology came easy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of things that I learned is the translation of texts from like the Hebrew and the Greek and how, you know, I, I usually uh, read the King James version or the ESV. I'd probably likely read the ESV more so today than I would the King James version. But when I was going through um, the text and, I, you know, using the Accordance app, which is fantastic as well, and I was sort of using the skills that this book taught me how to read the Bible, I was like, oh, that word's actually not there in the Bible, the translate. That's actually not in the original Greek or that's not there. And it just changed everything. So I, I just encourage people to learn and don't be embarrassed to say, admit you don't know how to read it properly because, you know, words like therefore for me were a huge thing because I'm like, oh, I've got to read the chapter beforehand. Like Romans, um, especially, you know, Romans 13, learning about, uh, you know, the government involvement and things. It's like the therefore, okay, well, I've got to read Romans 12 and I've got to do all these other things. And yeah, that really transformed my sort of way of reading the Bible and the theology that followed. But it's interesting you mentioned with the five points of Calvinism, the tulip. I think it was R.C. Sproul. He said he would have had it as tulips with the S for sovereignty of God. But he said that doesn't I think, sound I think, catchy. I think he had srusip, if I yeah. recall, srusip. Um, yeah, and he's like, yeah. that's not as catchy. Like these, yeah, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, which doesn't stick in the mind nearly as well as tulip. No, but, but I'm glad yeah. you pointed out the sovereignty because before, um, you know, coming on today, that was something I wanted to sort of touch on was the S part that, you know, almost should be there at the beginning, which then leads into the other sort of points as well. 
But you mentioned that one of the things that you've, you found that people struggle with the most was the limited atonement. The thing that I have found that people struggle with the most like towards myself would be the election. A lot of people struggle with the election. They don't like the idea that God chooses some people and not others. And there was a, a sermon and I cannot remember what it was, but it was maybe about five years ago I listened to it. And even though I believed in election prior to that, it was something that settled it in my mind. And that was the fact that the way that I viewed it, I, I've always viewed it how, like, how's that fair that God ooh, like would do that? Like, oh, and you know, it sits uncomfortably under our human skin to go, is that just, is that fair? And it sort of changed my way to thinking instead of, instead of looking at election as why would God choose that person and not that person? Why would God do this? I look at it now as why would God choose any of us? <laughs> like we are, as you mentioned, totally depraved, original sin. Like we are, and I think it was Paul Washer. He said, he did a sermon once about how babies, like if they could murder you to get the watch off your wrist, they would. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he sort of says, we have this, like you said, secular humanism would have you believe that we're born innocent, these innocent little babes in our mother's bosom. And then, you know, it's the world that, um, you know, makes us depraved. And that sermon that Paul Washer gave was a great idea because, you know, you only have to hold a little baby to see they want something. It's only that they physically can't get it, that they would, you know, do certain things. But um, that's the sort of point I have noticed. People can't fathom how God could be cruel or they can't fathom how god could be unjust and why would god let people get sick why would god not let people be saved don't everybody have the same abilities to do it so how would you sort of combat that before we get into the scriptural things like what's sort of a something you would say in response to people pointing those things out well i, I think to really truly embrace Reformed theology and the fullness of what the New Testament teaches on this, it requires of you to start with that, what I mentioned earlier, and that is that recognition of who God really is. Um, since we were talking about RC, um, the the one book of RCs that I, I read in a single sitting, and I normally don't do this, but I, I stayed up till like one o'clock in the morning to finish reading it, was called The Holiness of God. And I recommend it highly to everybody because once you get a grasp of God's holiness, his otherness, that's really what chesed means in the Hebrew is a, is a absolute otherness. And once you realize his utter transcendent glory and power and how we are simply creatures that exist, every beat of my heart, every breath of my mouth. Uh, comes from from his hand every moment he sustains me we instead of seeing god as sort of an object of of something out there realizing who he truly is in his grandeur and his majesty asking questions like why would you do something hmm. in in romans 9 when when paul lays out for example the uh hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, he brings in an imaginary objector. And the imaginary objector says, well, how can he find fault for who, who can resist his will? And Paul's answer to that is, who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? Will the thing formed 
say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Hmm. So I, I think it requires the work of the Spirit of God to break that rebellious streak that even exists amongst Christians to what the Scripture teaches about God's right to deal with men as he deals with, with men. Hmm. And only then can we really understand the depth of the grace of God which is not just something that helps us, it's actually that which saves us. And it has to be free. Mm. Otherwise, if, if, if works are involved, if my merit's involved, it's no longer grace. And so fundamentally, I can point people to that. I can, you know, if, if I believe someone's truly a Christian, I will press upon them the passages of scripture that talk about, you know, the singular glory of God and the salvation of God's people. And, and I'll walk them through Ephesians one and, and, and everything else, but I can't accomplish that change of heart. That is a spiritual experience. And that happens. And, and people will ask, well, don't you have friends that you work with in ministry, but they still haven't come to where you are on that. Yeah. And I don't know why God hasn't brought them to that point yet. Um, and maybe he won't in this life. I don't know why that is. All I know is, in my experience, um, trying to artificially create that experience doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, only, and I've just, I've just talked to so many people over the years. I don't know if you've seen the debate that I did with a fellow by the name of Leighton Flowers on Romans chapter 9. Um, I think it was 2015 we did that. And I've just had so many people over the years say, I was just going along in my evangelical church and everything was fine and dandy until God hit me upside the head with Romans chapter nine. <laughs> and I, 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 I just like, wow, I didn't know that was in there and I have to deal with this. And yeah, it's, you can't, you can't fake that. That's something that, that only the spirit of God can do. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've also had to change my way of thinking because as I said I was I was raised in a very free will, you know, God God wouldn't God's all love and no wrath sort of sort of type of thing and I I found that you don't understand grace when you don't understand those other things. Like you can't understand the depths of grace um, at all when you don't understand the other side of the coin, what leads to grace, what it actually is. Right. So yeah, but, um, you know, the, the whole argument um, that I usually get when people confront me with Calvinism is, you know, the obvious things that I mentioned before. Why would God want little, little children to die of cancer? Why would, you know, God want all these things? Well, but, but let, me, let me point something out. I, I, think it's, I think we need to point something out. Those yeah. are not questions just for Calvinists. Those are questions for any Christian theist. Yeah. Even if you're an Arminian. You still have to ask the question, when God created, did he know all of that was going to happen? And if mm. he did, did he have a purpose for it? Mm. It's, just, it's just been amazing. I, I did, a, I did a, a Bible Answer Man broadcast back in 2008, I think. It was sort of an ambush. It was the last <laughs> time I was ever on. Um, <laughs> and they brought in this guy named George Bryson, and it was it was meant to be you know, let's defeat reform theology. 
it didn't turn out that way. I've met many people who became Calvinists as a result of that show. <laughs> but one of the issues that came up was this very issue. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. If you hold an orthodox view of God, if you don't embrace open theism, the idea that God doesn't have perfect knowledge of future events, then you have to believe that when God created, he knew all this was going to happen. And yet he still created the way he created. So the only question is, did he have a self-glorifying purpose in all of that? Or is it just meaningless, random violence and horror and everything else? And why do you think it's better that God wound this whole thing up and then went, oh, what a mess, (laughs) rather than there being a redemptive, God-glorifying purpose in everything Hmm. that we may not know in this life, but we will, because Ephesians chapter one says it's all the praise, the glory of his grace. So you either have God accomplishing his purpose, or you've got God doing a bunch of stuff, and you've got all sorts of senseless, purposeless evil. And I I go, that is a much tougher question to answer, why there is all sorts of purposeless evil than there is that God has a purpose in the evil that exists. So I, I think it, mm-hmm. I think we need to, anybody, the Arminian may never be challenged to think about those things, but they should. And mm-hmm. uh, interestingly enough, Arminius did. Yeah, Arminius did. And he was much more closer to Reformed theology than most modern Arminians are, which is, which is interesting. That is very interesting. Now, I wanted to dive into some of the scriptural things that people throw at me. Um, now, I think the number one <laughs> scriptural verse that people say, well, Reformed theology cannot be biblical because of John 3.16. I'm going to read them out, the verses, for people who are listening who might not have a Bible in front of them. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him uh, should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that's always the first thing that people say to me. And I'd love for you to kind of, um, you know, give a sort of a response to to that. Like, what, what, how would you answer that when people come at you with that verse? A um, number of years ago, I went to Italy. And it's the only time I've been in Italy. And I, I did a, uh, what they said was the first conference on the doctrine of election in a thousand years in Italy. Um, wow. And the weekend after that, I, I was doing it again. I was really tired. It was late at night. We were in a brethren church, and brethren are not known for being reformed. Mm. And I'm being translated live into Italian. So a stop, start, stop, start, which if you've ever done it, is very, very difficult to do. It's very hard to speak in that fashion. And it's 10 o'clock at night, and they decide to take audience questions. And a woman stands up in the back of the room, and she's crying. Now, I've just presented John mm. 6 and Romans 8 and 9 and stuff like She's crying and she's pointing at the wall behind me. Mm. And I don't, I don't read Italian. I've only studied French, German, Latin, Arabic, and a few other things, but Greek and Hebrew. But it wasn't difficult since I've studied Latin to turn around. It was John 316. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't need him to translate her tears. Um, she was going, this can't be true because of that. And mm. John 3.16 is probably the first verse that I memorized as a child as well. The problem is when we memorize something as a child, we very often memorize an interpretation and context around it that doesn't have much to do with what the text is actually saying. Mm. 
And so I'll give a brief response here and then direct people if they if they're interested. Uh, before uh, he wrote his book, um, What Love Is This? Dave Hunt and I exchanged, had some online exchanges. And uh, I wrote an open letter to him actually after the book came out. And I addressed, we eventually did a book together. So it is addressed in there too. But I, I, the open letter is still on my website at aomin.org, where I really spend the time going through John chapter three, not just mm-hmm. beginning with verse 16, but start beforehand, yeah. get the context, go through, translate it. I teach Greek and Hebrew. And so it's important that you don't import ideas in when there's no foundation. Because there's actually specificity in John 3.16, if you'll allow the text to speak for itself. For God so loved the world. Well, what is that? We've always been taught that's every single human being that's ever existed. Think about it for a second. What about the Amorite high priest who was offering pagan sacrifices on altars hundreds of years before Jesus? that was allowed to perish in his darkness without anyone ever telling him anything. What about all the people outside of Israel for 3,000 years? Mm -hmm. Um, There is a specificity in the text, because when it says, for God so loved the world, they say, that's every single human being. How often does it mean that in the Gospel of John or in all of John's writings? Why does John say, love not the world nor the things in the world? God's supposed to love something we don't love? No, there's at least 14 different uses for world in John's writings alone. So you've got to allow the context to define that, or you're going to end up making John say all sorts of self-contradictory and silly things. And if we don't, in our preaching, teach our people how to handle the word in this way, by carefully doing it in our own preaching, we're just creating more of the problem ourselves. So, so for God's love the world, the whole world of Jew and Gentile. That's because the New Testament perspective, you see it over and over again. Uh, what's what's another one of the, the verses that, not that there's objection, but that everyone has memorized? For all have sinned and fall short of the mm. glory of God, right? Yeah. Part of the Romans wrote. Did you know in context, the all there is Jews and Gentiles? Mm. That's, what, that's what he's addressing. He's addressing Jews and Gentiles. But when I was taught it, and probably when you were taught it, It was just individuals. It was just, we didn't even know what the context was. Same thing here in in John 3. So he gave his only begotten son, his unique son. And then in the, and I'm not trying, people say, you're just using that to get around things. When you look at what John wrote, he specifically says, in order that everyone believing in him. Yeah. Now. When we translate that, that's sort of what we would call wooden or stilted or uh, it doesn't flow well. And so you'll have the translation, whoever, whoever. So everyone. So it's not it's it's not it's what it's saying is there is no one who will believe in the son who will not receive eternal life. Whoever believes, everyone believing will receive eternal life. What do we do with John 3? We read a completely different concept back into the word whosoever or whoever. It's not 
every single believing one will receive eternal life and it doesn't matter who they are. It's everybody has the ability mm -hmm. to do it. And there's no decree of election. John's not talking about any of that. What he's saying is the giving of the son results in the fact in results in the situation that anyone who believes in Christ will find him to be a perfect savior. And Calvinists believe that. No, you don't. You believe in election. Yes, I do believe in election. I'm saying anyone who will believe. I'm simply saying no one has that capacity unless drawn by the father to the son. That's what Jesus says in John 6, just a few chapters later. He says no one has the ability to come to the son unless drawn by the father. And if you want to say he draws every single person, John 6 then tells us that everyone's going to be saved because mm. that would have to, because he draws, everyone he draws to the son, he raises up on the last day. That's receiving eternal life. So you either have to be a universalist or you have to realize your reading of John is, is incorrect. So there's a particularity in John 3, if you'll just not read stuff into it from outside and allow it to speak. Whoever believes in him will not perish does not mean that every single person has the capacity to do so. That's not what this text is talking about. It is saying that there's no one who has ever truly turned to Jesus who has ever found him to be anything other than a perfect savior. And that's a that's a wonderful message. Uh, mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah, that's um, it, it's sort of similar to I wanted to get you to sort of go into one Timothy two verse three. There's also one Timothy four verse ten, uh, but I'll start off with two verse three, which is this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, a lot of people say all people, um, if if there is election, how how does how does what one Timothy Two verse three apply to that logic, right? Uh, that's why it's really important to <laughs> always look at the entire context of any yeah. verse that you look at, and the way we even memorize scripture. And you got to realize, verse divisions were introduced in 1551 by Robert Estian, Calvin's printer in Geneva, and so before then, nobody had a John three sixteen or anything like that. You mm -hmm. had paragraphs, you had chapters, but you didn't have verse divisions yet. And it's easy to find stuff that way. Hmm. But in our minds, we break things up. We don't, we wouldn't want our own books to be read the way we read the Bible. <laughs> you wouldn't true. even want your own email to be read that way. <laughs> You'd want true. the context to be read more properly. So look at the context. First of all, then, I exhort that prayers and petitions, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men. What does that mean? For kings and all who are in authority. What are kings and those who are in authority? They're kinds of men, they're categories, they're classes. So when it says for all men, it's all kinds of men, kings for those who are in authority, so we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So the chapter starts off with Paul talking about all men in the sense of classes, kinds, so on and so forth. He's gonna continue that later on when in verse nine, he's going to say, well, verse eight, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, that wrath of dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves. So he's talking about different kinds of people in the entire context. Mm -hmm. And again, this is, this is a situation where this is an exhortation to prayer. And he uses an illustration in the middle that everyone can understand, but it's not his intention to be laying out the doctrine of salvation here. This is about 
how should you be praying in the church? And so he says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. What? Praying for kings. Now stop for a second. Why would anyone question that? Because it's kings and those in authority that are persecuting the church. And yeah. so he has to be telling the people in the church, yeah, you need, you, you need to even be praying. Well, let's put it this way. For certain people you've got down there in Australia that seem to think that uh, God died and put them in charge. Um, you know, it's real easy yeah. to decide, you know, uh, that guy has just messed up my life. And so, no, you need to be praying that God will bring them to a knowledge of Christ. And if not, will at least protect the church and God's people from their evil influences. So th that has to be said. So keep that in mind. This is good and acceptable sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men. So what was the all men in verse one? Different kinds of men. Mm -hmm. Desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That means God wants to save government officials too. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm not sure we want to have them in the church, but God wants to save them too. This is a reminder to the church. God, God draws his people from the poor, the rich, the powerful, the weak, from all over the place. Mm -hmm. So when it says desires all men to be saved, to come to the full knowledge of the truth, in the context, no one would go, oh, you mean that, for example, in 1 Timothy 2.1, when it says uh, that prayers be made for all men, that means you're supposed to get out the, the phone book from Ephesus, if anyone remembers what a phone book was, <laughs> and start with the alphas and start praying for this person and that person and start all the way through to the omegas. Is that what you mean? No, mm -hmm. he's talking about all kinds of men, and he's saying God desires the salvation of all kinds of men. And then this is laid out in the next two verses. For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself, and this was very frequently used as an objection as well, who gave himself as a ransom for all the witness for this proper time. So people say, see, he's a ransom for every single human being. Now think about what that means. One mediator between God and men. And this is this has really helped a lot of people get past the objection you're talking about. Mm. And that is to ask someone, and again, this is only relevant to people who really, really, really believe the word of God. If, if there's really a question there, a lot of these observations are, are not going to be overly helpful. But what does the mediator do? What does the mediator do? Mm. Um, I could go from here to Romans chapter eight and 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 talk about the mediator in Romans 8, the fact that when Christ mediates for his elect people, that results in their salvation. Um, but a mediator, the function that Christ has as mediator, who is he mediating for? Is Christ in his, there before the Father, is he asking the Father to save those for whom he did not die? Now, if they don't believe in them in the Toma, it doesn't matter. But for a Reformed person, there needs to be a consistency between the, the mediation and the atonement. Because when the high priest goes into the holy place and he sprinkles the blood, he's interceding for those for whom he has made the sacrifice. You can't have two different audiences. And so here, Paul is talking about 
Christ giving himself as a ransom for all, I would say all kinds, Jews, Gentiles, kings, queens, whatever they might be, there's all people in the elective of God. He has given himself a ransom for all. And so the mediation that he does, when it says he is a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, he is interceding for his people. Hmm. And according to Hebrews chapter 7, since he always lives to make intercession for them, he is able to save them to the uttermost. There is a specific mediation being made on the basis of the sacrifice he has given in behalf of his own people. So there you have in the middle of what's actually just an illustration of why we should pray for people that we don't think necessarily God's going to want to save. Hmm. What we have is an understanding of the perfection, once again, of the Father and the Son, their perfect unity, the work of mediation, and it all makes perfect sense unless we decide to go, well, I'm a 21st century Westerner, and so I'm going to read into all an individuality that none of the original readers would have ever understood, because they fully understood the idea of Jews and Gentiles, groups, kinds of people, all that kind of stuff. That was a, a regular part of their thinking. It's not a regular part of our thinking, yeah. and therefore, we're the ones inserting stuff that shouldn't be in there. Mm. Yeah, I, I'll never forget growing up, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. That's one of the main verses that, you know, people slap on there, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope. And it's like when I remember when I learned how to read the Bible and I actually learned the context of that, I was like, oh, I'm not sure people would want to actually stick that <laughs> that verse in the same context that they're having it. But you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it all comes down to how we read the scriptures, how we read the Bible. And we have lost the art and the skill of doing it. It's not something that does come natural because we've been taught not to do it the right way. So we almost have to retrain ourselves, I think, in how in how to do it properly. Um, because you can you can you can blame us preachers for this one. Uh, <laughs> because we are supposed to be giving the example each and every Lord's Day when we open the word, we are to be training our people how to do this by doing it ourselves. And the problem is once the church becomes a place of entertainment yeah. rather than being a place focused upon the fullness of the word of God. And, and you know, I, I just think of what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, I am innocent of the blood of every man. Why? Because I did not refrain from proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. Mm. And if any person stands behind a pulpit, and does not have as their first priority to proclaim the full counsel of God, the blood of their listeners will be required at their hand. That's, mm. you know, John Knox said, I've never been afraid of any man, but I tremble every time I go into the pulpit. Mm. And there's a reason for that. Yeah. There's a reason. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many other verses. I'm aware of the time at the moment. I mean, 2 Peter 3 verse 9, I'll just read it quickly. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And I thought we could finish on on you kind of explaining that because that comes to more, I guess, the nature of God almost like he doesn't want or wish for any to perish. Um, and that's something that people 
can't doesn't sit well with Armenians or people who aren't like minded to us. Um, let me just mention to folks that in the Potter's Freedom, I have a chapter called the Big Three. It's Matthew twenty three thirty nine, First Timothy two, and Second Peter three nine. So I deal with okay. all three of these very much in depth. Now on this one, you will find Reformed people that take two different pr- perspectives, and so some of them will take perspective that you were just mentioning that this is a um, a discussion of the general desires of God or something like that. I, I don't take that that perspective. I go into Second Peter. Second Peter is addressed to the elect. Read Second Peter one one, mm-hmm. um, and then when it says is patient toward you, not wishing that any perish. The discussion, if you follow the pronouns in Second Peter chapter three, he's talking to a particular. He's talking to the elect. And he's saying, and he's talking about the parousia, the coming of Christ. Why has it been delayed? It's been delayed so the elect can be gathered in. So he is patient toward you, not wishing any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is it that we today uh, speak together as Christians? It's because God delayed the parousia long enough to gather us in. if Christ had returned in the 1800s, so much for us, and we wouldn't have we wouldn't have uh, been been gathered in. So, I believe what the text is talking about is the the patience of God in drawing in all of the elect, and that could be for quite some period of time because his discussion again there is not the issue of salvation. His discussion is why has Christ not returned right now, mm-hmm. and what he's saying is because the work isn't done. There's going to be a delay as the elect are being brought in. So hmm. uh, again, context, follow the pronouns, just follow, be consistent with the pronouns, because what's so easy to do is to skip over them and read our own pronouns in. Yeah. So when it says a patient with you, we turn that into, oh, that's a general statement to every single human being. How, how do you get that from what Peter said? But we do it, because it's we've heard it done over and over and over mm-hmm. again, rather than asking, am I really listening to what Peter said to the audience as they originally would have would have heard his words? Um, and that's that's an important aspect of things. Now, I wanted to f- sort of finish off with you kind of maybe, if you don't mind, giving a little bit of a message to this last question that I have for you. And this is something that people say to me all the time. If God is sovereign, why do we even bother? Why, why, why do we bother? And somebody wrote a tweet a couple of weeks ago and said, I've never met a Calvinist that's not a jerk. And I wrote a quote, tweeted it and said, that's because God predestined me to be a jerk. And I made it, I tried to make light of it like that, you know, trying to, but, but it is something that comes out quite often. If we don't have free will and God chooses everything for us, why do we even bother? And, you know, I try my best to try and answer that. We don't know who the elect are, so we can't really give up on things. But I feel like you might be able to answer this question far better than I could. And I thought it might be a good way to sort of end uh, the podcast with, you know, and, a message. End the podcast with a 45 minute uh, discussion. <laughs> That's right. Oh, okay. Take it away, uh, Dr. J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, first of all, um, uh, a lot of Calvinists are jerks. Uh, I, I, I can be a jerk, but. Um, the, the people that are the jerkiest toward me tend to be Calvinists too. So um, there, there, is, there is that element of things and that, that shouldn't be the case, but it is, it's a fallen world. But I think part of that's just because most of the people I'm around are 
reformed. And if I was in another circle, I'd probably think they were bad too. But the, the question is a good one. And I've spent hours and hours discussing various aspects of it. When someone says, if God is sovereign, why bother? Uh, there's different aspects that should be taken into consideration. There's an assumption being made there that if God is sovereign, then that means what he does in time is irrelevant and we're all just a bunch of puppets. And I want to keep, I want to, again, this, this is only going to be helpful to someone who actually believes that the Bible is the word of God. You need to remember something. Jesus became man. He entered into time. And in Acts chapter 4, the church praying after his resurrection said that everything that happened to him, from Pilate, Herod, the Jews, the Romans, God predestined to take place. So are you literally saying to me that Jesus was a puppet? That because Acts 4, 27, 28 says everything they did to him, predestined by God before him, that it was meaningless? What makes time meaningful is the fact that the eternal God is accomplishing his purpose in it. You're saying that unless we are sovereign and we are autonomous and we can destroy God's purposes, that nothing's meaningful. And I go, why do you believe that? What in scripture tells you that? What you you have. You have clearly, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter four, God says to the people of Israel, I'm going to give you this wonderful land. I'm going to give you my law and you're going to turn against me and you're going to sin against me and you're going to sacrifice to idols and I'm going to disperse you amongst the people. Does that mean everything that happens in the next 700 years is irrelevant? No, it's written for our instruction. That's the, what's, what's, what the scriptures say. So you really have to ask yourself a question. Could you, are, are, are you assuming that unless God just simply winds it up and then sets back and go, hope this works, is that really the God of the Bible? And are you really saying that everything is going to be worthless unless that's how it happens? Are you really saying that because Jesus became flesh that he was just a mere puppet? All this stuff, there's so much that's being assumed by people. That's not coming from scripture itself. When, when that, but the other way that that term is used, that objection is used, is if God is sovereign in the matter of salvation, then why do we bother? Everyone who's elect is going to get saved. So we can just eat, drink, and be merry. Who cares? And again, God ordains the ends and the means to the end. So Peter's denial was a means to the God-ordained end of the sacrifice of Christ. Peter, if, if Peter had stopped that, he would have been stopping the greatest purpose God had, the greatest good that ever come out of that. So there are means to ends. We get to be blessed to be the means by which God proclaims his message to the world. Now, I don't know why he does that, you know, God could just simply save us and then zap us out of the world and have angels do the proclamation. He doesn't choose to do that. He chooses both the ends and the means. And that makes the means extremely important. Important in our sanctification, important in conforming us to the image of Christ, important in the church and the glorification of God 
throughout however long he chooses to be working out that drama of salvation in this world. And so God ordains the ends, yes, but he also ordains the means. And we get the tremendous privilege of being used by God to bring about his kingdom in this world. And that's a tremendous, tremendous uh, honor and something we'll be held accountable for as well. So I just, when someone says to me, well, if God's sovereign, then what does it matter? I, I just, I just go, have you actually read through all the Old Testament? <laughs> because there is that's the statement is made over and over and over again. I did this. I brought this calamity. God did it, but he obviously used men to do so. He used Pharaoh. He used Nebuchadnezzar. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is so proud. I, 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 and God strikes him down, takes his reason away from him. And then when he restores his reason to him after a period of time, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Go read Daniel chapter four. Here's a pagan king going, there is a God and he's sovereign over all things and he works his will and no one can stay his hand. Oh, God used means to accomplish his ends. Yep, he sure did. That's the message of scripture from beginning to end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you for coming on today. I've, I'd like to keep you for another seven days to go through everything, but I do know you have a life outside of doing all of this. So I will release you from uh, my custody, but I just, I am grateful that you could explain this. Um, if, if people want to follow your work, if they want to get your books, some of the things you've, you've written um, and also listen into some of the podcasts you do um, as well as some of your debates or ministries, where can they go? Well, aomen.org is our old, 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 old website. Um, not old, old in the sense we haven't updated it, but we've had that longer than a lot of people I talk to at conferences have been alive. And uh, so you can go there and uh, find uh, links to all the debates we've done. Uh, you know, like I said, we got another debate coming up in April. Uh, did a debate just a few weeks ago back in Pennsylvania. And um, I'm glad they're helpful to folks. I, I think it's useful to do that kind of stuff. Uh, the books are listed there and uh, we do the dividing line. We'll do three of them this week. And that's really the main way we reach out to folks. And we deal with a lot of, you know, today I was talking about vaccines and, uh, you know, all sorts of things like that. So we do address some cultural issues uh, uh, going on. And of course, I'm one of the pastors at Apologia Church in Mesa. So Apologia Studios. We do stuff through there, uh, preach regularly there. And um, so that's that's how you track our stuff down. As, and of course, Sheologians, my daughter's webcast is also a part of Apologia Studios as well. So uh, we're taking advantage of the internet for as long as we have that opportunity. Yeah. I, I don't know how long we'll have it. We pray that God will protect it. But uh, you and I both know there's a lot of people that wish we weren't able to say the things we're able to say. And so, um, you know, I don't know what the future brings. All I know is Christ is victorious in the end. And um, we may have to walk through some dark and difficult times, but um, he will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. So praise God. <laughs> Amen. That post-mill life right there. <laughs> Well, thanks again for joining me. Um, I hope people are encouraged by this. I hope people reach out if they do have any more questions. I'm more than happy to sort of direct you um, to places that might answer those questions. Excellent. Thank you.